0: Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and chat with ID discussants to learn more about high-yield ID topics. And so I'm excited to continue our Breakpoints and Febrile collaboration. Last week, if you didn't catch it, you should go back and listen to our Febrile digest about phoning a friend featuring Dr. Rachel Britt. And then we have this episode, and then you can stay tuned for an episode about FUO on the Breakpoints channel a couple days after this. So I'm excited. I'm going to welcome our guests today who are going to help us navigate this case. I'll start with Dr. Jillian Hayes. Jillian is an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. She obtained her doctor of pharmacy degree from the greatest university in the world, the University of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. That is my alma mater. Amen. (laughs) And completed her residency at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She is an active member of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, SIDP, currently serving as the vice chair of the Publications and Podcast Committee. Her interests within ID include antimicrobial stewardship and transitions of care, incorporation of trainees into antimicrobial stewardship, and resident wellness and mentoring. Welcome, Chilliad.
1: Sarah, I'm so pumped to be here, especially with a fellow Gamecock. It just does not get better than this. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> now that I've moved up north, people don't, don't have the same allegiances, and they don't know quite how bad Clemson is. Amen. I mean, my goodness, I can say a lot of things. And now
1: that I'm working in ACC territory, it just gets harder. Um, Aaron, I, I understand you can also relate to the ACC, the SEC transplant in ACC mm-hmm. territory. So we live a rough life. I'm just
2: laughing because I thought you put in that you went to the greatest university in the world. And I totally forgot Sarah also went to Cal. To, oh my God, California. What?
0: It may oh. slightly be biased. I just made the greatest
2: faux pas in the world and said the wrong USC. But I, I don't even know why I was thinking that. Um, but I. Was like oh, and so I mean, shortly we'll learn where I went to school, and I was like
1: the actual greatest university. But here we are. <laughs> In fairness, I, I did write that
0: myself, Erin. So that was that was still me. <laughs> Well, now I will welcome our next guest, Dr. Erin Mercury. Erin is an infectious diseases pharmacist serving as the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation for UPMC Health System and a Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. She obtained her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the actual greatest university in the world, Auburn University. <laughs> I'm just reading what I've been given, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and completed residency at the University of Wisconsin. She hosts Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast, and serves on the SIDP executive board. Her research focuses on infectious diseases and immunocompromised hosts, gram negative resistance, and antimicrobial stewardship implementation science. Welcome, Erin. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you. It's <laughs> lovely being with two other SEC gems. Well, as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we always start by asking to see if you'd share a little piece of culture, something preferably non-medical that brings you happiness. Uh, so maybe I'll throw it over to you, Jillian.
1: Listen, I could talk (laughs) about this question probably longer than the actual topic at hand, so I will cut myself off eventually before I give you a sermon you didn't ask for. But when we decided to do a podcast Crossover. All I could think of was back in our golden days when, like, That's So Raven and The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody (laughs) and Hannah Montana would do the crossover episodes. (laughs) Um, So, all of this to say, I'm feeling like Hannah Montana, which is a peak time of my life. Um, Anything Mm. from like the OG Disney Channel days, high school musical, you know, references, the Cheetah Girls, anything like that, I absolutely love and will love forever. My actual life goal, speaking of Disney Plus now, is to make it on Dancing with the Stars. So even though we're like 31 <laughs> seasons deep, I will watch this show until it it dies or I die, whichever comes first. <laughs> um, and if podcasting and pharmacisting like actually works out for me, I put it on every letter of intent for residency that my long-term <laughs> career goal is to be the first ID pharmacist to win Dancing with the Stars. And that is still my long-term life goals. So um, I danced my whole life and that that's going to be the the hopeful peak of success. So stay tuned, um, you know, and vote for me if the the time comes. Jillian,
2: I would, I, love it. I would vote for you. <laughs> I would log into every device I ever owned. I would,
0: <laughs> I would tweet it to the whole world to vote for you. It would be my, gra- it would bring me, <laughs> you'd have the whole ID community behind you.
1: That's yeah. what I'm thinking. And I feel like we're pretty unstoppable. Like text the word Jillian to 21523. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I'm ready whenever, whenever ABC and Disney is ready. So am I. I would do that until my fingers <laughs> bled for you. That's. Thank you.
2: My um culture is pretty much just supporting Jillian's dancing career and <laughs> also being one of her compadres in the Cheetah Girls and sending each other <laughs> Cheetah Girl gifts and songs as frequently as possible throughout the day. And amen, amen. if anyone's listening to this and you're having kind of a mediocre day, one, I hope you're really excited to learn about what we're going to talk about. And two, you should go listen to Strut by the Cheetah Girls, too from, (laughs) and nothing will pump you up more. No, but literally, so I wrote on my thing that I mostly go throughout my day wishing I was as awesomely wonderful as Jillian Hayes. So that's my first piece of culture. Outside of that, I do, I am the proud mother of an 18 month old golden retriever. She's the love of my life. Her name is Nora. I will happily show you 2000 photos of her if you want to. Um, I feel
0: very lucky that I was able to see her before we started recording. She
2: makes a solid appearance on the pod. She also probably squeaks in the background, so that's what you're hearing. It's not your car. Your car is fine. Your brakes are fine. It is my dog's toy. I guess other fun fact about me, I was born in Thailand, uh, Bangkok, Thailand. That's where my parents started their married life. And so when I think about my culture, it's funny. I'm actually Icelandic uh, by heritage which is neat. But a lot of my core family culture and a lot of like the art in our houses, our furniture, the way my mom cooks, um, a lot of it has a heavy Thai influence. So it's, I think, kind of funny. You walk in my home and it looks like you're in Bangkok. So that's pretty neat. And then I guess other than that, I love being on the water, preferably a lake or the sea more so than the ocean. But I am happy anytime I'm in Sunshine and Water, which does not bode quite well for the fact that I live in Pittsburgh and we're entering <laughs> the season of sadness. Um, So if anyone wants to, I might just like drive down to Jillian's, you know, she gets sun a lot longer <laughs> than I do here, but...
0: Oh, I love all those. Well, there's a reason that I don't usually share a culture thing, because I would also dominate the podcast and just talk about the things that I like. So I try to hold back an interest of the listeners. (laughs) Um, But we have several consult questions for you. And I've tried to simulate... Uh, the types of things that happen when you're an ID fellow on service, and I usually have a long list of things I want to learn about or ask my ID pharmacist friend. So that's kind of how I built this today. But our sort of tilt to the case and and the goal here is to talk about antifungals. And we really hope that this uh, people who are listening to this will also listen to the most recent Breakpoints episode, right? That was released right before this. Yep. I think marries together very well. And so we're excited to have some synergy there. So, I will jump in and tell you a little bit about this um, this patient. We have a 60-year-old male who had a history of a renal transplant and was admitted to the hospital with give or take three or four weeks of worsening fevers, productive cough, and intermittent chest pain. He received a live-related donor kidney from a family member for chronic glomerulonephritis about 10 years ago and has had stable graft function until recently. His immunosuppression is meant to be cyclosporin, mycophenolate, and prednisolone. Uh, he does occasionally miss medications or transplant appointments, but otherwise hasn't had any big uh, life changes. And so his initial lab show us that he has some elevated BUN and creatinine, a mild uh, elevated AST, ALT. So both of those are in the hundreds. And then he has some initial imaging done in the ED and sort of as he comes into the hospital. So we have a renal ultrasound and Dopplers that show a normal allograft. He has a normal transthoracic echo and his chest x-ray shows some mixed ground glass and airspace opacities, maybe some nodules. We have some micro that's all cooking in the lab at this point. So urine, blood, and sputum cultures. And the patient unfortunately is is not doing well and has a pretty acute decline after he comes into the hospital. And so ends up being transferred to the ICU where he's emergently intubated. And now he's requiring three vasopressors, He actually, due to uh, renal dysfunction, I know I didn't give a creatinine earlier, is now requiring dialysis continuously. And then um, he has put on some empiric antibiotics. So you can pretend whatever you want. I'm just going to say Vank, Safapine, Metronidazole, because that's the usual uh, combo that we have here. But because the patient is, is very ill and we don't really have a clear reason why, the ICU team has approached us about starting mycofungin at this time for empiric antifungal coverage given his critical illness. So we as the ID team say, okay, that seems reasonable, uh, but we're wondering about how to select the best dose. And what we now will learn is that this patient is about 150 kilograms, so that's 330 pounds with a BMI of about 45. And so I was wondering if you could walk us through what factors you think about for mycofungin dosing, you know, when and if we should adjust it, or if you have any other general thoughts on the case at this point or um, tips for us as we approach this patient.
2: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, Dr. <laughs> Dong. So let's, uh, I was, I, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's walk through it. I think. Mike, a kind of canon dosing in critically ill patients and or obese patients, of which we have a patient who is both. I think is a super important topic, and I, I love it. And I promise I'll get there. But I do want to pause, and and especially for our pharmacist colleagues on the line, I'm sure Jillian can attest to this. Often we're asked a question, or interns, or residents, or first year fellows, or whatever place in life, or you're a season attending, and you just are getting a question that you're like, oh, I think especially with a crashing, critically ill patient, our gut is to like answer the question in front of us and you're maybe a little frantic or whatnot. And often we might be asking the wrong question, right? And so could I tell you how to dose MICA in this patient? Yes. But first and foremost, before I provide you that answer, we should consciously walk through is fungin appropriate in this patient and is that the right thing to do? The other thing I always preach on my rotation uh, to my learners is that a lot of things happen to our patients throughout their hospital stays, especially a transplant patient such as this one. And on the day you pick this patient up or get the consult, you're offered jumping to take care of like the immediate problem in front of you. And we've lost track of why this patient came to the hospital in the first place and you You have to fix that problem to get them home. And that should always be your goal is how am I getting this patient home? And so, yes, right now they're crashing and empiric antifungal coverage is likely appropriate and we'll walk through why, but what happened to why this patient came in a few days ago? Why are they on these broad spectrum antibiotics? What's going on with these GGOs? Is that why they're now crashing and we just have failed to treat that? Or is this a new infection they've picked up in the hospital? And I think those things are really important. And so, Fever, cough, and GGOs in a transplant patient is a mild wide differential, but all transplant patients are also not created equal. So this is a kidney 10 years out that he's on triple immuno, but for all intents and purposes, especially with the background that this patient hasn't really been in and out of the hospital or had a lot of issues post-transplant, this patient in the broad scheme of immunosuppression is not that immunosuppressed. So at baseline, his risk of an invasive fungal infection is not as high as, say, a lung transplant that got you know, camp path induction, and they're a month out, and they're presenting with GGOs, that's bad. Um, But this guy, you're kind of like, okay, what's going on? The other thing when we're thinking about, okay, empiric antifungal, and how do I dose them, and what's going on, is that when you're crashing this hard, their initial presentation is kind of brings to mind in a transplant patient, okay, what could be this really broad differential, and things like pulmonary aspergillosis definitely rise to the top of that. That mucor weirdo molds, they don't cause you to just crash and burn um, like like you're telling me this patient is presenting right now. But what we can see and what I think we forget is that endemic fungi like blasto and histo in particular can cause this quite acute decompensation and we very rarely cover for those empirically. However, this might be a patient where you want to think about that. Um, The other thing that can present like this is cryptococcus, especially in patients with a history of cirrhosis. They can cause just a bad SERSI septic syndrome, and that's not often on a differential. But in a patient like this, if they also had cirrhosis, you might think of sending a Craig and and go ahead and rule that out, and that would kind of change your antifungal picture. But more than likely, what this is is a kind of a classic candidemia. The patient has risk factors of broad-spectrum antibiotic exposure, ICU lines, what have you and this acute decompensation? So yes, starting in a kind of canon empirically for candidemia tracks, and that is reasonable. And we don't really need to be thinking quite about all those other crazy fungus at this point in time, but it should be in the back of the back of our minds. Um, okay, so let's talk about how to dose a kind of candid. Sorry, I had to kind of go through that background, but. that's perfect. Uh, I kind of can't because not all transplants are created equal, right? And that's just in the transplant ID space. That's a very important thing to think about. Not all immunosuppressed patients are the same. And we will talk about that, Sarah, a lot in our fever of unknown origin episode, which is coming Mm -hmm. out on breakpoint soon, which I'm, you're just brilliant. And I'm really excited for everyone to hear you talk about this from a different perspective, but it kind of can it's beautiful, lovely, wonderful drugs. They are (laughs) so safe they are so well tolerated they are so preciously wonderful they are so effective and and they have as most things they have a very nice drug exposure to efficacy relationships so as we give the patient x amount of drug and you hit a certain concentration we see more kill of different organisms in experiments and that usually pans out clinically but we'll talk about when that doesn't pan out and so, but what we we know for sure from a pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic standpoint is that there is a drug exposure efficacy relationship with echinocandins. And in looking at some preclinical data and some model data, it seems that the PKPD parameter that drives efficacy for echinocandins is either a Cmax to MIC ratio or an AUC to MIC ratio. And once upon a time, a very, very wise pharmacist who's exceptionally skilled in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics told me that, Every drug other than beta lactams are AUC drugs and that we twist ourselves into circles too much trying to stress about is it CMAX or whatever? And he's like, beta lactams are time over MIC, and everything else is just the exposure, which is AUC to MIC, and like have a nice day, which is not <laughs> wrong. And it's it's helpful when you start to think about these kinds of things. So we want to make sure we're getting an appropriate total exposure in a critically ill, obese patient. We do dose of once a day. And so if I'm giving that once a day dose, do I have enough drug in this patient for this 24 hours to ensure that I'm hitting my target? couple things to think about here. Whenever you're critically ill, you just have absolutely deranged pharmacokinetics. You're going to have increased volume because you're slamming fluids. You're going to have increased clearance and obesity causes those things as well. And then you're also probably going to have some degree of hypoalbuminemia, whether due to your critical illness or just chronically. And so that in a kind of cannons, we can see that de- um, increase AUC by about, or sorry, decrease AUC by about 30% because you're going to have increased clearance. The kind of like landmark, I don't know if landmark is the right word, but the first study that um, came out in this that really got people thinking about this problem was this 2019 study by Wassman and colleagues in JAC. And this was a prospective PK study looking at a kind of and what they did is, there's actually, so figure four in this paper, if anyone's pulling this paper up or wants to download it later, is really beautiful. It's a color-coded chart, and they have body weight on the x-axis. They have the MIC of the organism, looking at candida specifically here, on the y-axis, and they show you the doses that you would need to achieve certain MICs. Essentially, what they found is that if you have an 100-milligram dose of mycofungin, which is the standard package insert dose... That will get you there, a.k.a. that will be sufficient exposure if you weigh less than 125 kilos and the MIC of the pathogen is 0.016 or less. If you get over 125 kilos and or your MIC rises, you need 200 milligrams, if not 300 milligrams. And they go so far as to say that if you're morbidly obese, so we're looking at you know 150 kilos, and your MIC is higher than 0.064, then you should consider an alternative therapy because it's unlikely that you'll achieve adequate exposures. So this was this is a really nice study. It's not the first study that was ever done in this space, but it's the most recent and probably the most well done. And they have this really beautiful algorithm to put this into perspective for people. This caused a lot of centers and ICUs to come up with new dosing algorithms and suggestions for obesity. But I would say across the board, and I did kind of check a pulse on some colleagues in the space before this podcast to make sure I wasn't crazy. Because I would say (laughs) at UPMC, is this something we routinely do? If you have an 150 kilo patient, do we give more mica? No. But if you ask any of us, if we're on consults or if we're answering stewardship questions, or if we're looking at these patients, I would say most of us are going to go ahead and recommend that higher dose based on some of these preclinical data and some of the early clinical data. So this is all, the study was all preclinical. And so the big question is like, does that pan out clinically? And there's there's intermittent studies here and there. There's a 2022 study out of Henry Ford that showed no difference. They looked at a ninjala fungin and they just looked at things by BMI. They showed no difference, but again, it's observational, a small study. We actually, a really nice study out of Loma Linda are some of our SIDP member friends or authors on this paper. Um, they looked at safety and clinical outcomes with high dose mica in patients that had proven candidiasis. So that's nice. It's not just looking empirically. Um, they had 21 patients, the medium BMI in that study was 37 and their average dose was 300 milligrams. And essentially they found the outcomes were that like four patients died 17%. But again, these are critically ill patients. They had really high Apache scores. 45% of them were in septic shock. These patients are going to do poorly. It's really hard to show, since this is a rare disease in general, that the dose is going to save mortality-wise. But they saw a no safety signal that, you know, the main concern here would maybe be liver dysfunction. And they saw nothing in transanamases, some increase in over Overall, these patients did fine. And so that's obesity in particular. And then the, the other side of this coin is critically ill. There's a nice study out of the Netherlands that looked at um, PK in critically ill patients and showed across the board the exposures were too low. And if you weighed more than 100 kilos and you were critically ill and you were only getting 100 milligrams a day, again, we're seeing increased clearance, increased volume in these patients. They're also more likely to have pathogens with higher MICs. And the higher your MIC goes or the more resistant your infection, the less likely you're going to hit your target. And I would say for most of us, antifungal senses. They could be send outs, not I don't even I don't I know some community hospitals don't routinely even do candida susceptibilities. Uh, so it's not like you have that information at your fingertips right away. I guess to wrap that up, I mean there's a lot there to unpack and I could go on and on with with some other references in this space, but is there a robust clinical study showing that 300 of mica is better or saves your life more than 100 of mica? No, but the drugs are exquisitely safe. The preclinical data and the PKPD data is pretty compelling. That 100 milligrams is not enough. This patient is so sick; you can't really afford to get it wrong. And so, in this assessment of the risk-benefit analysis of what you should do, I would say that the risk of of underdosing is far greater than the risk of overdosing in this case. And you should err on giving more. If you have someone this sick, doesn't have an immune system, and is that obese, like we would we would give them more drug and. I'll just conclude with that there is a 2022 consensus statement from, and I love this, this is quite a long title, but the Anti Infective Drugs Committee of the International Association of Therapeutic Drug Monitoring and Clinical Toxicity. I hope you all have badges and ribbons (laughs) with that name because that is amazing. Um, They have a really nice um, consensus statement specific to our kind of canons that just came out this year. And they essentially say you should absolutely do therapeutic drug monitoring, and especially in our patients that we think of that we're at risk of deranged exposure. So those with liver impairment, those with hypoalbuminemia, those on ECMO, those on CRRT, high MICs, pregnant, obese, and critically ill, these are all patients that are at risk of poor exposures. And so they actually recommend TDM. And some of the AUC to MIC target ranges that have been suggested in preclinical models are anywhere in the range of like 848 to 10,000 exposure. Like it's, the range is quite extensive when you look at these models. Um, some people say uh, different median and mean AUC exposures, but so we'd have to kind of dig into that to have a more appropriate target, but they're basically recommending TDM I would say none of us have routine access to a kind of canned in TDM. And if you're doing TDM, you have to know what you're aiming for. And we don't have a very clearly defined target. So that is what makes all of this challenging. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's any harm in giving two, 300
0: milligrams if a patient's really sick and they're really obese. Yeah, that was such a great overview. And well, I'm going to take all of these and make sure that we put them into the console notes so people can go pull up these papers and look at that figure, particularly the one you're mentioning, the color-coded one. So i I'm going to adjust the case a little bit and say that I left something out and tell you that he actually had a follow-up CT to that chest x-ray, which shows multiple small cavitary lesions and nodules. Despite his empiric antibiotics and the mycofungin, he continues to worsen and at this point has been transitioned to ECMO for support. There's concern for persistent disease due to some sort of disseminated fungal infection, particularly in light of his CT results, but we don't have any definitive micro results at the at this point. So we all agree, okay, we're going to expand his antifungal coverage to think about mold active therapy and in discussion amongst the ICU team and our ID teams, we're all in agreement to start amphotericin. But I wanted to see if you could help us think about this change for our patient. And I always, when I have a patient on ECMO, feel like it's a conversation with our ID pharmacists to make sure we go through our medications and see how we can optimize the dosing. But I wanted to see if there's any other frameworks that you keep in mind or teach ID fellows or trainees when they're approaching dosing while patients are being supported with ECMO.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, this is starting to feel like a bad choose-your-own-adventure book, so I'd just like to say <laughs> I'm like already having to cheer for our patients a little Yeah, you don't a want bit. a book written
0: by Sarah. <laughs> I know.
1: Okay, okay. We'll go with it. No, so um, I'll, I'll start with sort of overviewing some key points to think about when you have an individual on ECMO and antimicrobials. Um, obviously, a, a big topic. So, we'll be sort of painting in broad strokes here. And then um, I'll let Aaron chime in about maybe some specific amphotericin related information as well. Uh, these are very pharmacist answers. You're getting a whole lot of information other than just the question you asked. But this oh, is, again, how we live our life. So, <laughs> I'm like, I didn't even um, talk
2: about CBVH in the last question, but we'll move on.
1: We'll move on. <laughs> You're getting what you pay for. Otherwise, this is going to turn into a lot more than just the crossover episode. Okay. They're going to be like, Breakpoints took over. They can't go back, yeah. okay. <laughs> so thinking about ECMO again, sort of painting in broad strokes, I like to think of things like um the circuit itself. Uh, volume of distribution, something called the octanol water partition coefficient or log P because no one wants to hear me repeat that phrase over and over, um, and protein binding. So this is going to hit on a lot of those points that Aaron just ran through that all uh, puts patients at risk for suboptimal drug exposures. So first of all, we'll talk about the circuit itself. Um, Drugs will become sequestered in the actual circuit. So that is one thing to keep in mind. Uh, They bind to the tubing, the oxygenator, um, and you're losing drugs. So that's going to decrease your serum concentrations. Drugs with higher protein binding often see more sequestration. Um, So we're already starting to think, okay, do we need to increase the dose? We've talked a little bit about that with mycofungin, but that's kind of where we're going to be heading. Secondly, volume of distribution. Again, as Erin mentioned, these folks are typically getting a ton of fluid resuscitation. So that's going to be something even independent of ECMO that's also going to increase their volume of distribution. Next, you're going to have some endothelial activation secondary to the actual support. So you may have capillaries that are also leaking. So we're like on a runaway train here with the volume of distribution sort of increasing uh, one thing after another. If you're adding circuit volume to support the patient's preload, again, more volume of distribution. Um, and so then thinking again about log P, higher positive values of this particular coefficient indicates an increased lipophilicity, um, which means that a drug will have greater propensity for increased sequestration, again, in the circuit. So we are losing more drug to that circuit. Um And then you add in things like the fact that maybe their liver is not um, functioning the way that it used to. They might be also supported on some sort of renal replacement therapy. And those types of things are going to muddy the picture a little bit because I've said, okay, we're losing a lot of drug. We're at risk for suboptimal exposure. But maybe some of our clearing organs are not functioning as well as they were before. Um, So all of this to say is very complex. Uh, I definitely recommend uh, absolutely, as you mentioned, phoning a pharmacist for so these are the types of cases that we 100% want to be involved in. We are also trying to figure out, okay, how the heck do we balance all of these factors that we just mentioned? And again, that's by no means a, a complete list of all the things that we would consider. Um, so I'll also shout out, uh, not only ID pharmacists here, but our critical care colleagues and cardiology colleagues. Um, I, not jokingly say anytime I see a pharmacist who regularly practices in a unit with ECMO, like I should probably take their rotation maybe like once a year just to get a refresher. Um, And so those folks are exceptional resources. So generally speaking, we are nervous about suboptimal exposure. We will balance that with the fact that maybe some of the organs that are helping us clear are not um, at their peak. So uh, Erin, I'll, I'll, toss it to you now to talk a little bit about Amphotericin specifically. I'm smiling because my CTICU
2: pharmacist is on my speed dial. He also has a golden retriever. So (laughs) good people all around, phenomenally brilliant people. Um, No, Jillian is 100% spot on correct. And so in thinking about what she just explained, talking about the two antifungals we were discussing, if we kept this patient on mica and they go on ECMO, do we change the dose? That data is conflicting, and there's honestly not as as much as we're going to talk about with amphotericin. Um, there's some ex vivo studies that have said there's a high extraction of mycofungin or other echinocandins kind of from the ECMO circuit, which would mean I would increase the dose in that in that setting. But there's others saying there's no clinically significant impact on any PK. And so I will say ECMO alone, I don't usually think to change the dose kind of Mecanicandon. However, that patient is usually obese and critically ill in my world. So they're probably already on a higher dose. So that is what it is. And then amphotericin, this is interesting. So the first publication that came out showing that liposomal amphotericin, which I would say uh in would is most of our preferred amphotericin product, you know, some centers may still be using other products preferred, but I would say most of us are using liposomal amphotericin daily dosing as our preferred amphotericin at this point. And uh, this was a 2019 publication in the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy by Brannick and colleagues, and they said that they noticed an interference with a patient that had blasto when on ECMO, they actually did trough monitoring, and the trough level was extremely low, and they ended up increasing the amphotericin dose. And they said, it's our belief that there's a a possibility that liposomal is getting significantly sequestered by the circuit, and perhaps we should be considering the use of amphotericin deoxycholate. In These patients, which is not lipophilic, um, but we traditionally don't use it because it causes such significant renal toxicity. And so that was really interesting. Then following that, Erin Barreto, who's a phenomenal pharmacist at Mayo, her colleagues published a paper um, about this as well in 2020 in pharmacotherapy about this altered PK and the dosing of uh, liposomal amphotericin, and interesting isavuconazole. And I know we're going to talk about the azoles later. And they suggested that up to a twofold increase in standard dosing may be necessary. So if you're given, you know, five mix per keg for empiric fungal unknown origin, we're talking about going to 10 mix per keg, which is a lot. And then there are some real-world evidence of people switching the first case report to my knowledge that I've seen of someone actually putting a change, either an increased dose of liposomal or changing to deoxycholate, In clinical practice was a publication uh, titled Radical Treatment for Blastomycosis Following Unsuccessful Liposomal Amphotericin. So they actually increased the dose and then eventually switched to the, to the deoxycholate. So all that to summarize, at my center, when patients go in ECMO, if they require amphotericin, we do switch to the deoxycolate product.
0: Well, unfortunately, your choose-your-own-adventure is not going your way, and it turns out tr- we… Tracks for the life of a clinical pharmacist. <laughs> yeah. like, um. oh, uh, that's,
2: <laughs> called, that's called Tuesday. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's <laughs> called my day today. So.
0: <laughs> well, it turns out you get a, we find out that… oh we have an ampho shortage. And as if you were not busy enough, I wanted to see what is now added onto your plate when this or any sort of antimicrobial shortage pops up fluid shortage that impacts antimicrobials. I would love to hear a little bit of behind the scenes about, you know, what happens. Cause I I'd say that sometimes as a trainee, you may or may not really know outside of sort of the notification that that's happening. Sure.
1: Um, When you said what is going... That sets the tone, right? Uh when you when you said we want to know what's going on behind the scenes, two gifs, gifs, however you prefer to say it, popped into my head. One is the the Muppet kind of running frantically at the camera. It's like a lot of that at first. Yes. And then it's the little girl who is hanging onto the carousel and just being dragged across word. the floor. It's kind of like alternating between that. No. Um all all jokes aside, uh shortages are inevitable. I think we've um we've all certainly learned that, yes and amen over the past couple of years some of us are like having physical trauma responses but hang with me to quote the wise philosopher Aaron McCreary what? who tweeted this on June 13th 2018 you're welcome Jillian what so there's a, there's a search feature I can google your tweets which is actually super helpful you tweet so much stinking awesome stuff I do that all the don't time don't pharmacy and tweet people people will haunt it will haunt you five years later The silver lining to every good shortage is research and stewardship. I mean, that is a picturesque quote. Yeah, no, it's that does sound like me.
2: Yeah,
1: it's calm. (laughs) I can hear your voice in my head. Never waste a good shortage. Yeah. Yes. Um, And truly, creativity is kind of an underrated skill in in the practice of medicine. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. when we are forced to have ingenuity bred into our day, I think it's a a happy accident, as Bob Ross would say. Um, So we've had a lot of experience with this. And when a shortage is identified, the American society of health system pharmacists actually has a cool graphic about shortages. If that can be a thing, you're welcome. We'll link that as well for y'all. And there's sort of, two tracks that are running simultaneously and on the diagram they function you know side by side but I more so like to think that they're like intertwined and then separate a little bit and then definitely intertwined again so you have the operational side of things um, where you're validating the details of the shortage right like how long is this going to be out of stock do we have an alternative distributor that we can order some sort of supply from or something similar can we compound this ourselves is there some sort of workaround where we can get creative and actually you know make this in-house? Um, a lot of the times the answers to those kind of easier questions is no, uh, which is where the, the fun begins, dare I say. Um, and so once we kind of have some of those logistics, um, uh we get information about those logistics. That's where we can start assessing clinically. Okay. Who is using this or has been using this medication? Um, Does this patient population need to be using this medication is usually a question that we get to spend a lot of time um, debating. And so sometimes shortages can be an impetus to reflect on, um, Hey, we've been doing this thing, uh, why do we need to keep doing it? Um, and sometimes that that's the the fix, right? Is actually fixing some sort of clinical um, practice that we don't need. Uh, recently, we had a shortage of IV metronidazole, and I think a lot of us maybe had some honest reflections in the mirror of like, you don't need IV flagell for all of these things. Like, it's not going to save, you know, 90, 99% of the the folks that are currently receiving it, and a lot of them can take it orally. Um, I know at, at Duke, I joined the team recently there in June. And just before I got there, they used that shortage to actually change the way they were dosing metronidazole. So they used it as a a time to say, "Okay, let's relook at the PK. Do we need to be giving it every eight hours and everyone? And the answer is no. So some folks are going to get it Q Q12. And so um, lots of kind of uh, branches on this tree, so to speak. So um, operationally confirming those details and then again, going through patient populations, prioritizing patient populations who maybe do need what is left of the stock of the medication um, or finding um, therapeutic alternatives, whatever that may look like. When we were going through the metronidazole shortage, I know one of the things uh, that I hadn't thought to think of is all of the automated dispensing cabinets that the doses are hiding in. And so um, just little things like that. We're hunting down doses, literally stocking them all over the hospital and redoing not only the therapeutic plans, but also the operational plans to make sure that the patient's who need that drug are getting it without it, letting it be a free for all for everybody to take kind of the, the preserved supply. So after that, uh, so that's kind of the, the stewardship component that Aaron's tweet alludes to after that, you get to research it, right? And that's where you get a lot of the, the data that can help um, cement those practice changes so that things don't just go back to the way they were before the shortage. Um, and I think that that's a little bit of where the magic happens. So um, a lot of coordinating, a lot of brainstorming, creativity, working with our operations colleagues who are exceptionally helpful, our buyers. I feel like I'm trying to give everybody their their flowers here, but it really becomes a big team sport. And uh, it can be fun, dare I say. Perhaps <laughs> not when Zerbaxa so left for like a very long time. But some of them <laughs> that was, the lower stakes ones can be fun. That was sad. Um
0: no,
2: Jillian's exactly correct. I think it, it, the beautiful thing is wow, you realize nothing pushes change. Like you we simply do not have it. I'm sorry. You have to use something else. And you learn, wow, people can take oral meds. That wasn't so bad. So the Ivy metronidazole shortage was honestly beautiful. Um and same with the Ivy Clindamycin shortage, like. Okay. So Faslin for all surgical pre-op, we've been trying to do that for two years, but now we'll, now we have to. So yay. <laughs> um, so that, that can be helpful, but I will say and just to like, I, I, we, uh, Jillian's my hero and I'm laughing so hard right now. It's so enjoyable to be around all of you guys, but for all the fun we're having, they are also, I mean, these shortages impact everyone in healthcare, right? And you're taking valuable human resources and brain power and and pivoting it from things that could move patient care forward to having to mitigate something and put a fire out. And it is, as Jillian said, a, a village effort. And that that is that's really challenging when you have to put all this energy into something and and then flip it and then it's changing back. And so I think, you know, teams need a lot of credit for that. And then we also sometimes have to make really, really, really hard decisions. Like you're like, I only have X amount of drug to treat ex-patients. I have data showing that this is a superior agent to the other alternatives, but we're going to run out. And so you have to pick and choose who gets the therapy. And that is not what we went into healthcare to do, right? We went into healthcare to help everyone and not to have to sit and pick. One of the worst things I've ever been a part of was when a a chemo agent went on shortage in my residency. And it was first-line therapy for testicular cancer and also first-line therapy for these very rare tumors that grew in pediatric patients. And you would they would basically neurosurgeons would basically use this chemo like in the optical nerve and it prevented pediatric blindness. So you had to pick like, do men get to get first line therapy for testicular cancer or do they have to get horribly toxic second line or can children not be blind? And that is like not what anyone ever wanted to make that decision. And so, I mean, shortages are terrible in in that regard. And so it's something, you know, we should advocate pretty fiercely for in that those are things we should try to prevent if at all possible. Yeah.
0: Um, well, I think I also thank you guys, I asked a very broad, big question, and you managed to make this beautiful description of the process and, you know, both sides of it. But you know, this was our pick your own adventure book. And we at February found out we were wrong. Looks like there's a whole area of ampho in the back and we're in the clear. J- Jillian um, found it.
1: <laughs> yeah, Julia was digging. Like, the back, yeah, found it. I was crawling around in some of the shelves in the back storeroom, and I found <laughs> the it. A hero we need. A hero we need.
0: So, you know, I'm going to move our artificial case forward and say, although this would be a somewhat atypical final diagnosis for the patient we initially presented, and say, let's pretend we had a final diagnosis of invasive candidiasis, but my goal here of saying, oh, now we're in a place where we would ideally like to be on an azole for therapy. And so I've managed to try try to weave it so that we avoided azole antifungals along the way because I wanted to save this as sort of our finale because I can only imagine how many questions and challenges you have with navigating these meds in the clinical setting. So I would love if you could teach us your favorite pearls about azole therapy, the dreaded interactions, how we Approach a lot of the frequent questions we get. So I'll just open it up and leave it broad, and you guys can sort of pick and choose what your favorite Azol learning points are. I'm literally like squealing in my seat. Like,
2: I, I was like, <laughs> Yeah, you guys can't see it, but Aaron's like I, dancing. I'm like, I can't wait for Sarah to finish talking so I can talk about azoles. Um This is hands down one of my favorite topics ever. So I am going to only speak about the PK considerations of the different formulations and what we would monitor, because if I talk about the class as a whole, I will literally talk for the next two hours. Um, So Jillian, I'll go through that. And then at the end, if you want to chime in with like your key, you've, endless wisdom. So anything you want to share about DDIs or whatnot, uh, please do, but I'm going to focus on the the PK part. Um, okay. So literally this is my favorite topic. And when I have my pharmacy residents and students on rotation, I'm like, if you want to earn your stripes as a pharmacist and just build street cred quickly, know the difference between solutions and tablets. And that is your prime. And it kind of is. So azoles are a really pharmacokinetically interesting class and pharmacists just nerd out over these. So let's go in order. Okay, so starting with fluconazole, our OG, tried and true, beautiful, what a beautiful drug fluconazole is. You know, people just don't appreciate fluconazole like they should. Mm. Fluconazole is great, okay? And so from a PK standpoint, when do you need to do therapeutic drug monitoring or when do you need to consider levels? Never. Never. Well, never say never. I'm sure there's like some crazy situation in which you would, but routinely not a thing. We don't do TDM. Why, you ask? Because people and patients in clinical trials, the clinical data across the board show that we're getting adequate exposures with our standard 400 milligram dosing, which as a friendly reminder was derived because it's six makes per keg in a standard patient. Now, are your patients standard? Probably not. And so if you're dosing fluconazole for a real life infection You want to be closer to six mix per keg likely than you do to 400. So if you have an 150 kilo patient, you probably need six to 800 milligrams a day. Fluconazole is so safe, except long-term use at high doses. You can start to see things like dry eyes, dry skin, alopecia. You can see some kind of these odd side effects with prolonged high dose use, but otherwise fluke is very safe. And I would say we usually underdose it because we're afraid. No one should ever get 100 milligrams of fluconazole. That's like not a thing. Get rid of it. Also, from a. Except children. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I concede.
1: Yes, she even hesitated. Though she was, I like, did hey, pause. There was yeah. a
2: pause. I was like, <laughs> okay. Mm, Megan Freeman's listening to this episode. <laughs> Shout out to my favorite, one of my favorite pediatric attendings ever. Um, so yes, some kiddos, that is fair. Um, in general, though, you want there's actually a nice study by Neil Clancy and colleagues. So you you want a dose to MIC ratio here greater than 50. And so if your MICs are really low, you're golden. As they get higher, it gets harder. So, Glabrata, susceptible, dose dependent to an MIC of like 32. I. say in real life, you can probably hit about an eight. And then once those MICs are higher than eight, it just gets really hard to dose, but fluke safe, well-tolerated, reliable PK. We don't do TDM. The only thing I want people to take away from fluconazole. And if you listen to nothing else on this episode, this is your fact for the day. Fluconazole is the one of the only medications that when you're on CRRT, it is cleared more efficiently than Rockin' normal human kidneys, and our man is an elderly kidney transplant patient, so definitely cleared more efficiently than his kidney, assuming he still has his kidney after Jillian gave him Deoxy-Cole. Um because she saved the day. So... um It is, that is something to remember. We always forget it. So when you start CVVH and someone on fluke, you need to increase the fluconazole dose. When we look at CVVH parameters, there's something called a maintenance dose multiplication factor that we calculate looking at things like half-life and sieving coefficients and dialysis rate and all these complicated things. And the MDMF of fluke is 6, which means you should take your routine maintenance dose and multiply by 6 to get your fluconazole dose on CVVH. So in general, we go to six to 800. There's not a perfect science to this, um, but it's the only drug that it clears better than normal kidneys. Okay, moving on. Itraconazole. So ITRA is interesting. It has three formulations. It has a solution, capsules, the original capsules, and then there's a new kind of capsule jelly pill thing called Suba-ITRA. The OG pills are bad, the capsules. Never use them. They are very hard pharmacokinetically to get patients therapeutic. You have to take like a whole can of Coke with every dose. There's like all these rules to them. Patients come in with undetectable levels, even though they're taking their capsules. They're very challenging. Now, the solution is great. Much more reliable, PK, easier. However, traditionally, it was a lot more expensive. I think that's mitigated a bit now. Um, and I don't think it tastes the best. I'd have to refresh my memory on that. I haven't tasted ITRA in a while. Um, but the solution has much better PK. So with ITRA, before SUBA ITRA came out, we want to reliably use the solution. And I used to have, back when the solution was expensive, I used to have a prior auth form pre-typed with all the citations for the PK of how the capsules are bad. And then this like scathing paragraph of like, please challenge me, insurance company, with why my patient can't get solution, I haven't submitted that in quite some time. So I think payers are paying for the solution routinely now, <laughs> and we should be using itraconazole
1: solution. Or maybe they have your name and letters <laughs> and like- they were like, "Never mind, it's Pittsburgh. Send it through." <laughs> they're like this chick.
2: I don't want to doctor. her. Uh, good. That's how I like it. Um, no, I'm really nice. Most mostly you are you are except wonderful when, except when we're talking about itra capsules and pose a solution which we'll get to that next um it's called advocacy <laughs> you do your thing <laughs> <laughs> um so itra so suba itra is beautiful the pk is really nice but i will say it's it's quite it's new you know it's a shiny new toy that we're you know we have to be cautious with our use so suba itra is, is still i would say more um more expensive ITRA monitoring, so yes, we do it. There's a prophylaxis and a treatment goal. In general, you want a level greater than 0.5 for prophy. Um, unofficially greater than 1 for treatment, although you could argue 0.5. And then, interestingly, there's no ceiling. There's never been a threshold associated with toxicity for itraconazole. Anecdotally, if their level's greater than, like, 10, we're like, that's a lot of azole, and we decrease the dose because typically patients are on BID dosing, and so if they can take it once a day, great, right? Um, Interesting, fun fact about itraconazole, sometimes your lab will report these levels separate because it has an active metabolite. And so if you get two results back on your form, especially if you send it out, you might see itraconazole is a 0.9 and your itraconazole OH or hydroxy itraconazole is like 0.3. And you're like, oh no, I don't know. I want a greater than one. Well, that is in fact a 1.2. So you would add those two levels together. Some labs, like at Pittsburgh, we're very fortunate to have in-house azole TDM, and so we report them. We combine them before the clinician sees the result, so you only see that one level. But if you're getting two, you have to add them together. ITRA has a super long half-life, so technically you should wait 10 to 14 days to do therapeutic drug monitoring to get to steady state. I will tell you if a patient has histo and you're trying to cure them, no one wants to wait two weeks. They feel uncomfy. So we usually check a level between five and seven days, but note that it does have that incredibly long half-life. So your peaks and your troughs are going to be about the same because your steady state concentrations are about equal. Okay, voriconazole, the next one. So voriconazole. Is a very interesting drug, Michaelis Menten kinetics. If anyone remembers that from undergrad, no, only me. Okay, only one excited about that. So uh, essentially, what? Vor- Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you, Jillian. <laughs> so voriconazole is uh, we have no idea how to dose it. I'll just you know I'll just say that right now. We give six mix per keg times two, and then we go to four makes per keg daily. Again, in a standard patient, 70 to 80 kilos, that's going to be 200 milligrams twice a day. If you have a very obese patient, they probably need more. And so in general, if patients weigh more than 80 kilos, I go ahead and start them at 300 BID instead of 200 BID because we're looking more for a mix per kick. And then we check levels. So VORI, shorter half-life than ITRA. So check a trough in five to seven days. Level greater than one is our treatment target. Some people will say two for really serious aspergillosis. That is a clinical gestalt thing. And then, but what is definitely textbook is less than five to 5.5 for safety. So once your levels creep above five, significantly more CNS toxicity in the form of hallucinations, visual disturbances, just, you know, not great things. Um, so that's really two to four is kind of your sweet spot. Now, because its kinetics are so unpredictable at the absorption, distribution, metabolism level, elimination, it's like, okay, if my level is 5.5 and I want a three, what, how much and my patient's on 300 BID, Like, what do I do? What do I drop the dose to? The answer is no one knows. There have been publications trying to do algorithms and tables and come up with things, and that is fair, but at the end of the day, we have no idea. Pharmacogenomic testing would be phenomenal, but that's not routinely available to most people. I would say this is people are not going to respect me as a clinician after this. But basically, what we go with is if you're really far away from your goal, drop it by a hundred. If you're close, drop it by fifty. And because that is because, my friends, the tablets come in fifty and a hundred milligrams, and we are practical, if nothing else. So that
0: sounds about right. Sometimes
2: <laughs> you know what we do is because that's what you have to do. So. That's how we adjust doses. We, there is no rhyme or reason to it. I don't know. Jillian, do you have more insight than that? Because you probably do.
1: You're No, you've let out the secret. No. You know, it <laughs> it sounds way better when we're like, oh yes, I believe fifty milligrams here will be the just the ticket. You know, it's like, <laughs> check the no, level. I, we, you know, yeah. Yeah. But of course. Yeah. Um no. But the key is stay yeah. Stay in pill size. The key yeah. is
2: definitely just every time you adjust a dose, five to seven days later, check another level because mm-hmm. you just don't yep. know. And um All of the azoles are one-to-one in terms of bioavailability. So very high bioavailability, meaning your IV and your PO dose are going to be the same, which is very nice. So fluke one-to-one and changing. And again, no TDM. ITRA only comes orally. So no need to be concerned about switching to IV. VORI comes PO and IV. um, And it is one-to-one. However, because you do have that Michaelis-Menten situation happening at the absorption level as well, we do check levels when we switch between formulations even if we're not changing the dose because there just might be something wonky going on there vori does come as a suspension too but we just crushed the tablets the suspension is quite expensive okay moving on to posa and then we'll end with isaviconazole <laughs> yay okay <laughs> i'm like talking a lot am i we're, okay so i love it posiconazole posa comes as a suspension and a tablet and i already gave this away in itrax i got too jazzed but the posa suspension is suboptimal We never use it. In fact, we have hidden it from ordering and everything, except there are very, very, very rare situations where we will use Posa suspension, but honestly, no. So we don't even let people order it anymore. Tablets all the way. They are delayed release tablets, but plot twist. You can crush them. And there are two very nice publications, one by my dear friend Matt Davis and his team at UCLA uh, while Matt was still at UCLA. And essentially, because we have a reliable assay and you can check levels and the way the delayed release tablets are formulated, I won't get into the nitty gritty of that. Um, but most extended release, delayed release things we do not crush for obvious reasons because it's supposed to dissolve over time. Posa is formulated differently and you can crush these delayed release tablets. So that's why we don't use a suspension now, even for our patients with NRL tubes. So that's a really nice publication. Um, JAC, I think that's in. I think it came out last year. Um, So we've started utilizing that practice and we're checking levels and following those patients. So POSA, no suspension ever. Delayed release tabs are cool. It does come IV. The IV is like, woof, very expensive. So crush those tabs, my friends. And trough goals, um, prophy, 0.5, 0.7, different cancer centers will say different things for BMT prophylaxis. But 0.7, I feel like is what people usually go with. But honestly, if you deep dive into the literature, it's really 0.5. And then greater than 1 for treatment, but same. Some people like to push that to 2 if you're treating a really invasive infection. Amazing data that came out in 2019, also by Matt Davis and colleagues, was the first tox threshold for POSA associating levels greater than 3 with pseudo-hyperaldosteronism. This manifests as hypokalemia and hypertension. I'm obsessed with this publication because... When I was a resident in 2015 on my BMT rotation, I just got taught that POSA caused hypokalemia and all the cancer patients on POSA prophy got potassium supplementation and I needed to know why and no one could tell me why. And I don't like memorizing things that don't make sense. And then when this publication came out, it was like, oh my gosh, like azal antifungals work on cholesterol pathways and they cause pseudo hyperaldosteronism and they're hypokalemic. And I like felt like my four years of angst about why I was supplementing potassium, like the sun rose and the cheetah girls were singing, and I felt so at peace. So, very neat. And and what we're learning actually, and in looking in the FDA databases and safety reporting, report your ADRs, people. It is important. Um, is that this phenomenon can happen with all the azels right? So we can see this degree of pseudo hyperaldosteronism at different thresholds, um, and so that that is neat. So three. Kind of your tox threshold now, which is unfortunate because that's a narrow therapeutic index, right? And it's a good good drug otherwise. So um, that is POSA. And then POSA, we also check troughs at about five to seven days after starting therapy. And then um, last but not least, isaviconazole. So isaviconazole, our newest azole to the fam jam. ISA, when you look at the phase three clinical trials that got it FDA approved, they looked at the patients enrolled in that study and greater than 90% of the patients in those studies achieved levels greater than one. And so some brilliant, brilliant people who trained me um, said, basically came out and said, you don't need to routinely do ISA TDM because we're getting really reliable exposures. And that is true. I will say in, in the real world, outside of trials, when you're busting out ISA, it's it, I'm talking about it last for a reason, right? It's generally still considered our last line azole. It's usually because you've had a toxicity to the other azoles, You have some crazy mucor. Um, you're using it for a, a reason, right? And if you've hit the end of the line and you have an assay to check a level to ensure you have an exposure, and you have some idea, at least with this class, that exposures are good and you want to make sure you really achieve a reliable target, like do you want to risk your patient being in the 10%? Probably not, right? And we are so good at diagnostic stewardship and utilizing healthcare resources safely in so many ways. Is this really the time to cut out one level um, to not check? Probably not. And so I will say, if our patients are in ISA and we're treating an infection, we are likely checking levels. Um, Now, are there validated thresholds to achieve? That's where it gets dicey. Probably not. In general, we say greater than one, similar to POZA and VORI. And safety, interestingly, there's at least one study that came out a couple years ago that put a safety threshold of around five. And they saw that patients, when they had ISO levels greater than five, they started getting significantly more nausea and vomiting. So maybe we see some kind of th- safety threshold there, not sure isa like itra has a super long half-life so we check troughs just because if you tell someone to check anything other than a trough they're very stressed and they don't understand that so we just check troughs but really you could check a level at any point in time because your steady state curve is going to be you know very similar and ideally you should wait a little longer to check a level but again it's it's hard to wait more than a week to get a sense of where you're at when you're treating a crazy crazy fungal infection so Oh, guys, thanks for that.
1: I love that, (laughs) Tommy. I feel like I should probably applaud at some point. Um, Just like a couple snaps into the mic uh, to save everyone's ears. Um, My notes in preparation for this question say uh, I do what Aaron says to do. So that is in short. Um, the largest and most significant cosine that I can give. Um, Thinking back to, uh, I don't know, you know, about, listeners, but I felt supremely overwhelmed when I was trying to keep everything straight with all of these azoles. Um, I still sometimes feel that way. Right. And this is what we do for a living. Um, and so Aaron presented them in a certain order. And I think it is easiest if you learn them in that order for a lot of reasons. Um, it's the order that they, they came to us. And it is also, um, I think when you learn it, fluconazole, itraconazole, Vori, Posa, Isavu, it helps, um, create trends. And so anywhere that I could put like patterns into it was really helpful. Um, And this is also the way that my RPD finally explained it. And I was like, okay, I think I like half understand what is kind of going on. Um, Some other key things uh, that come up, thinking of common questions, uh, things like, Penetration into the urine, penetration into the CNS. So if we're thinking about urine, we're thinking really about fluconazole out of this class being our our um, agent there. And then in terms of CNS penetration, thinking about fluconazole and bori really as the primary two with good CNS penetration. Um, I think those are some of the the more common questions. And then. I always also thought of voriconazole in the middle making a lot of sense uh, because an upside down V looks like a mountain and voriconazole has a mountain of problems that can happen. And so it's kind of like, you know, fluke is well tolerated. ITRA has some more things to think about. Vori's like, okay, we need to think about lots of things, and the dosing's kind of made up, as Aaron said, so it's like, okay, that one was always, like, very nerve-wracking. Posaconazole getting a little bit more friendly, and then by the time we get to isavuconazole, it's like, ah, oh, okay, this one's pretty well-tolerated again. So thinking of them like a pyramid was another silly thing that helped me. <laughs> um... Aaron just like spewed wonderful data for many minutes, and I'm like, maybe you can think of this like a mountain. Um, but <laughs> anytime uh, that I could help simplify this, that was helpful. Um, and then one of the publications that I make everybody read is uh, Aaron's publication about being able to open and sprinkle the conazole capsules. I think that's really stinking helpful. I totally um, forgot about that. Thank you. <laughs> you should you should remember. I will promote it for you. I also make everyone read your ten myths of cellulitis paper, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Um, <laughs>
2: oh, my God. I totally forgot you can open the ice capsules. Yes.
1: You can. And you should. Yeah. So for <laughs> folks, um, you don't need to be giving IV to people. You can can safely open those capsules. So citation, Erin.
2: <laughs> I... I can't believe I forgot to mention that. Thank you, Jillian. <laughs> that was like such a passion of mine. So, cause it's like the the best thing about that is you can send patients home without a pick line, right? Like sometimes yeah. these patients go and it's mm-hmm. so, it's so heartening to say, Oh, here, just open this capsule. And that is amazing. I will say uh, the company has since uh, authorized the IV solution to go down enteral tubes as well. So that's very helpful. I, I do want to point out, so I, very passionately spoke about my <laughs> how I teach this. But I will say this is a space that there is just a lot of questions still and and there are a couple different consensus guidelines about azal therapeutic drug monitoring and they in general, say what, similar things to what I just said, but there are slight nuances and places where people will disagree. And so, um, Sarah, I know you're going to put all these references in, but just for our audience real quick, I'll, I'll shout them out. Um, so the first one is Cobley and Colleagues and Therapeutic Drug Monitoring 2022. It's like a trends and updates paper. There are consensus guidelines from 2021 by Shaw and colleagues, um, and that is in, I think, the Internal Medicine Journal. And then there is um, ASHOC and colleagues, 2022, there's a review on AZL-TDM. Um, and then I'll say from the SIDP standpoint, we're actually working on kind of a, a consensus paper that we hope to get out by the end of the year, summarizing where these guidelines agree and disagree. So it, it's by no means this like totally black and white situation. But I do think clinicians should have a general awareness of, of these ranges and of you know, never use POSA suspension, never use the original ITRA capsules and increase the fluke dose in CVVH. I'm
1: out. <laughs> and fluke is safe. That's the other yeah. thing. People fear fluke all the time. And it makes me upset, like on its behalf. I like to think of these antimicrobials as people, and I feel like fluke's feelings <laughs> are hurt. Like, and it's not fair. He didn't do anything to deserve this. I know. Vori did some things maybe, you know, to be like, okay, hang on. We got to be careful. But, like, not Fluke. Fluke is that friend that's, like, sending you a birthday card every year. Like, they're never. (laughs) Even when you don't know when their birthday is. No, you don't know. You you don't
2: know Fluconazole's birthday. But they are sending you a birthday card every year. (laughs) They are steady.
1: It's a relevant card. Like, it makes you smile. Yeah,
0: it's timely. It's appropriate. He is is very underappreciated. It's not fair. (laughs) It's not. Uh, (laughs) Go home and hug your fluconazole. Guys, I am so grateful that you came. You tackled so many questions and topics. And um, I, of course, at the end... I'll always love to open it up to make sure there's nothing else you want to shout out or say. And, you know, I'll add we did our Febrile Digest with Rachel talking about what to call about and ways to optimize our ID multidisciplinary team. But anything that you would like to share or shout out or promote as we wrap up today's episode?
1: Rachel did such a wonderful job. So just a general shout out to Rachel. What an angel. Um, So in in addition to all the awesome stuff, just want to echo, like, we're here to help. We are eager beavers as a a species pharmacist when it comes to wanting to assist. Um, We're worried about the patients right alongside. I think sometimes, and Rachel touched on this, it can feel like we're waiting in the wings for someone to make a mistake. And it's, it's not that at all, right? We're like right there alongside you, even if we're not at physically the bedside, like worrying about these patients wanting them to do well, invested in in their outcomes. And we want to, you know, not only um, get them to, to the best outcome that is possible, but also support trainees. Like I love working with the ID fellows so much. And so it's never a, a matter of like, oh, Jillian caught me, you know, doing something crazy again. Um, we just want you guys to be successful and share all the fun facts that we have stored in our brains. And you saw the, the visible excitement that Erin had literally stored up in her body. When you just let her talk about Like we have that (laughs) for every topic and we just want to share. So reach out or hear, um, we, we can't wait to help. I just co-sign that Rachel is an angel.
2: And (laughs) yes, that I think that's our biggest, uh, you know, we're, we just want to do the best thing for the patient as well and and help in any capacity that we can and and really talk about this gray space of the unknown of, hey, you know, here's what I would do with the dose based on what I've read and based on my experiences. But I'm going to be really honest with you that I'm looking at, you know, a 21 patient observational study and some mouse models. So let's have a real discussion about what the best thing we can do is. And I think that is you know, the best thing we can always do is just be a, a little humility and vulnerability in, in 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 what we have. And I think in the infectious diseases space in particular, that's often what we're working with. And there's no shame in that game and being like, there really are not a lot of data here. Um, and having a collaborative discussion is, is the best thing to do in that scenario. And we learn a lot from each other and from putting pieces together. So, and I couldn't agree with Jillian more. I mean, when I was a resident, I sat in the ID fellows office all the time and one of the things that makes me smile the most is when fellows that I've worked with at UPMC now, they you know, they fly the nest and they go be attendings at these big fancy places and they're texting me and uh they still text me about at certain things and I we we love to see it. We love to hear it. So we're always always around to help.
0: Well, I love this so much. Thank you guys for coming to the show. And we're gonna Plug again to please check out. So for Febrile, we have last week's episode, our Febrile Digest with Rachel. And then on breakpoints, make sure you guys listen along with us to the antifungal episode. Yeah, it just came out September 23rd on breakpoints
2: and Sarah you're not giving yourself <laughs> enough credit so Sarah is going to be featured on Breakpoints on October 14th with Dr. Gadi Hadar talking about Fever of Unknown Origins we were thrilled Which to I have love. Sarah <laughs> yes it's a wonderful conversation so I hope you can all tune into that episode it's really fantastic
0: and then hopefully we'll see everyone at ID Week come say hello as always you can find our consult notes on our website FebruaryPodcast.com I'm going to put tons of references from things we talked about today on the website we keep our infographics so I'm going to do my best to try and get us some antifungal ones that can go along with these episodes and of course if you want to go check out our merch store you can find that on the website as well so thanks for listening stay safe and we'll see you next time